0: Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. And this is episode 156, An Offa Marriage. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, such as extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Jason, Carrie and other Jason for contributing already. And here's what we're talking about over on the members' feed this week. Starting in the late 8th century, while the rest of Europe went in one direction, the cultures that were growing in Scandinavia went another way. Their art, literature, and religion all developed on a different path. Perhaps it was this unique perspective that allowed them, over the course of several hundred years, to open brand new trade routes and dramatically expand existing ones. It could be why they had the audacity to settle new regions, while also taking other territory from stunned and overpowered Western kingdoms. It can't be denied that what came out of Scandinavia from the late 8th century to the 11th century was a culture that was overflowing with energy at a time when much of the rest of Europe was suffering from periods of instability due to their relatively recent reinvention of governmental structure, religion, and culture. They were poised to change everything. But typically, we don't think of them changing everything. Rather, when they're discussed in a historical context, they're often presented like the shark in jaws, a force of nature that everyone must contend with. However, They were so much more than that. When they settled in Britain, they brought far more than the three ships that Hengist and Horsa did. Yet, we generally don't talk about the arrival of the Norse as an ethnic event the way we do with the arrival of the Anglo-Saxons. And while they led to significant cultural and governmental changes on the island, we don't talk about their arrival as a massive constitutional event like we do with the Norman Conquest. And I think that's foolish on our part. I also think it's a side effect of the fact that they didn't have their own historians. But regardless of their dubious press, they were incredibly important in the development of Britain, and of Europe in general. Now, you know these people as Vikings, and since we should probably debunk some of the myths about this era before launching into who they were, let's start with that title, Viking. If you'd like to hear more, head on over to thebritishhistorypodcast.com and sign up for a membership. It's about the price of a latte per month. Okay, back to our story. When we left off, things were looking pretty good for Mercia. Wessex was now acting as a sub-kingdom, with their king Bjortric married to Offa's daughter. Kent was thoroughly dominated. East Anglia appears to have been brought fully under Offa's control. Really, Offa's only neighbors that he didn't have command over appear to have been the Northumbrians and the Welsh. And the Welsh were behind that dike. Not only that, but he had his own archbishopric located in Lichfield, and the papacy seemed pretty interested in maintaining a good relationship with Mercia. All in all, it was pretty good. But not everything was perfect. Egbert, son of Ailmund of Kent, was living in exile. In Francia. A fact that was probably straining the relationship between Offa and Charlemagne, considering that he was a rival of Offa's new son-in-law, King Bjortrick of Wessex. Given off his reputation, we can be pretty sure that he would have liked to have disposed of this Kentish noble who wanted to dethrone his son-in-law. But it looks like Charlemagne was having none of it. That's tough, politically. And even though the two men had worked together in the past, it seems that things were getting more difficult. And honestly, that was a problem for both kingdoms. Like we talked about last week, trade in Europe was flourishing, and it appears that Mercia and Francia were no exceptions. To have an interruption of trade would have been bad for both of them. While Francia was undoubtedly incredibly powerful, Mercia was no wallflower, and it was gaining in stature on the European stage. It's always better to have allies than enemies, and something needed to be done to shore things up. So we're told that in about 789, Charlemagne made a proposal. His son, Charles, would marry one of Offa's daughters. This would likely help smooth over some of the ruffled feathers, and I'm sure that Charlemagne also realized it would also have a rather dynastically advantageous side effect by giving his future grandson a claim on Mercia. But it looks like Offa didn't miss that possibility because he responded that such an arrangement would be fine, provided that his son, Egfrith, would marry one of Charlemagne's daughters. That way, in the first marriage, all the offspring would be part of Charlemagne's dynasty. But the second marriage would result in the offspring being part of the Iklingas. So he wanted an even exchange. It was a bold move when considering what was at stake. When looking at this event, modern scholars such as Whitlock suggest that Offa might have been powerful enough to at least aspire to equality with Charlemagne. And in some cases, he might have actually approached him as an equal. However, this is not an uncontroversial opinion. After all, Charlemagne was the most powerful European ruler to date. He held an immense amount of land, and his foreign contacts were extensive and equally impressive. He was allied with the king of the Persians, the emperor of Constantinople, the emir of North Africa, the governor of Barcelona, the king of Asturias, and the kings of the Irish, and many others. Charlemagne was... Well, he was Charlemagne. Not only that, but seven years earlier, he had massacred the Saxons at Verdun, executing 4,500 of them after they had already surrendered. This was not a man to be trifled with, nor in any way was he soft. And I'm telling you that because some scholars look at Offa's response as an indication that he saw himself as Charlemagne's equal. Unfortunately, we don't know Offa's mind, so we don't know how he viewed his position on the world stage. But he did strut his stuff on occasion. We've seen how he dealt with the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Papacy, Wessex, Kent, East Anglia. Offa was certainly powerful on his own. And from our vantage point, we know that Charlemagne held more power and was also on the path to become emperor. But Offa didn't know that. So maybe he did see himself as being on the same level. However, even if he did see things that way, it doesn't look like Charlemagne agreed. We can say that because when Offa suggested that, in exchange, Egfrith should marry one of Charlemagne's daughters, Bertha, we're told that Charlemagne became, quote, somewhat angry, end quote. You're going to see that that's an incredible understatement, and that it's pretty clear that this was not an arrangement between equals. Charlemagne didn't want any dirty Mercian to touch Bertha. Some have argued that part of the reason for Charlemagne's reaction is that it's one thing to have someone's daughter come to your court, and it's quite another thing to send her away. However, I think that's incorrect, because he had already shown that he was willing to marry off his daughters to foreign leaders. This was not a possessive father dealing with fears of an empty nest. His daughters were a valuable commodity. To be given to major heads of state for example he contemplated marrying his eldest daughter to the emperor of constantinople there were concerns with claims to the throne to be considered and charlemagne had to keep in mind what was most politically useful fundamentally wasting a marital connection in a comparatively small kingdom on an island at the edge of the world well that just wasn't as useful as one of the major continental or mediterranean powers Beyond that, there is an interpersonal aspect to this. It appears that Charlemagne felt that by arranging this marriage, he was doing Offa a solid. He was Charlemagne, damn it! And while things might have gotten a bit tense, he was still willing to let his son marry one of Offa's daughters as a show of good faith that they were still friends. And then Offa comes along and looks a gift horse in the mouth. Well, that would make someone, quote, somewhat angry, end quote. Now, we're not sure why Offa felt bold enough to put this idea forward. Stenton argues that Offa's family had a longer lineage than Charlemagne's, so maybe he felt that his family should be held in as high or even higher esteem than Charlemagne's, and that the honor of intermarriage should go in both directions. But whatever the case, Offa's suggestion of an exchange really did tick off the Frankish king, and in 790, he imposed a trade embargo on Mercia. And then Mercia responded in kind. Alcuin tells us of how traders on both sides of the conflict were forbidden to sail. But it wasn't just trade that was impacted. It seems that Charlemagne really lost his shit over this. We're told that in the midst of this diplomatic temper tantrum, Charlemagne even accused Alcuin of being disloyal to Francia, and that he was secretly on the side of Mercia. His rage was so extreme that Alcuin had to protest that he'd never been loyal to Offa. And think about that for a minute. Alcuin, a Northumbrian who had spent most of his time in Francia and whose only contact with Offa was at Charlemagne's command, was being accused of essentially treason despite his close personal relationship with Charlemagne and his family. I mean, He wasn't even Mercian. He was from the nation that the Mercians hated the most. You can imagine him saying, Wait, you're mad at me and think that I'm a plant because I met King Offa once? At your request. And that I'm English. Even though, you know, my people have been at war with his for generations. Okay, quick question. Have you eaten recently? I think your blood sugar might be low. Now, given the fact that Alcuin survived, he probably wasn't that saucy. But it's clear that Charlemagne was really out for blood here. And not just within his own household. It stretched out into his kingdom, too. Even an abbot who oversaw tolls at various channel ports was called into question for being too friendly with the English in the past. Which, you know, is kind of his job. But he did eventually win over Charlemagne, so he was okay. The point is, though, that this was not a minor disagreement. Charlemagne had truly gone off the deep end over the marriage proposal. And remember how I mentioned that Charlemagne had alliances with Irish kingdoms? That was a problem for Offa, because some of those kingdoms had ties with the Welsh kingdoms that Mercia occasionally found itself in conflict with. Not only that, but Charlemagne was diplomatically active with border nations of Mercia, including Mercia's ancient enemy of Northumbria. The relationship between Offa and Charlemagne was at an all-time low, and things had taken a sharp turn for Offa, and it was all over a proposal. And then it got worse. On that same year, King Osred of Northumbria was, quote, deceived by his nobles, taken prisoner, tonsured, and forced into exile. Normally, this is a typical Saturday activity for Northumbria, I mean, how many of these Northumbrian kings have we seen being forced into monasteries? But in this case, it was important because of who those nobles placed on the throne. Or rather, placed back on the throne. Former King Æthelred, son of Æthelwald Maul, was back in power in Northumbria. This is really bad news for Offa, because it's clear from later events that Æthelred and Charlemagne were close. And that's why I suspect that he spent his time in exile in Francia. But at the very least, Ethelred had a good relationship with Charlemagne. And imagine that. Right when Francia found itself in conflict with Mercia, suddenly there was a palace coup, and a Frankish ally just happened to be placed on the throne of one of the most powerful kingdoms in Britain. And it also just so happened to be Mercia's ancient rival. It's almost like Charlemagne had seen this possibility coming and, you know, was subtly or maybe not so subtly influencing English politics to turn the screws on Offa. And don't forget that Charlemagne was still harboring Egbert, son of Ailmund of Kent, just in case the sub-kingdom of Wessex needed a little bit of a shake up too. This was looking really bad. And it's why when I read English scholars, and it is only English scholars who say that Offa was on the same level of Charlemagne, I'm a bit skeptical. He certainly engaged him as an independent leader, and it does appear that on occasion he felt like he was an equal, at least where marriage was concerned. But they weren't equals. Offa was powerful, but Charlemagne was on another level. Just like how Archbishop Jambert had underestimated Offa, it appears that Offa underestimated Charlemagne. And if he wasn't careful, he could lose more than simply a betrothal. So... Now that Mercia was cut off from Frankish trade, and Offa's northern border was active and threatening, Charlemagne dispatched Alcuin to negotiate matters. Apparently, the old monk had managed to win his trust again. Now, unfortunately, we don't have an account from Offa's perspective, which sucks because I'd love to know what he thought of Charlemagne's over-the-top response to the proposal. It's stunning, even from the outside, but from office perspective, I can imagine it would have been baffling. One minute you're talking about marriages, and the next minute you're public enemy number one simply because you suggested a twofer. But there you have it. Meanwhile, the nobles in Northumbria might have started to get second thoughts about letting Aethelred take the throne back, because things were getting pretty Northumbrian up there. So you might remember that the Northumbrian king who was killed last week seems like there's one every week, right? Well, King Ilfwald was the one who was killed last week, and he had two sons. And even though the man who was probably responsible for their father's death was now dead himself, it looks like they didn't feel all that safe. And so they are hiding out in York Cathedral. Smart move, since no one wanted to incur the wrath of God by killing someone inside a cathedral. However, they were still claimants to the throne, and thus a threat to Ethelred's power. So we're told in 791... King Æthelred of Northumbria convinced Ælfwald's two sons to leave the cathedral. We aren't told exactly how he accomplished this, but it almost certainly included promises of safety. But this is Northumbria, so they should have known better. And once they left the cathedral, the king had them killed. (coughs) King Æthelred's rivals lay dead, and he was allied with Francia. So obviously, Northumbrian power was solidifying underneath him and everyone would fall in line, right? Wrong. This is Northumbria we're talking about. And so in the following year, 792, some of the Northumbrians who weren't pleased that King Aethelred held the throne conspired to have former King Osred of Northumbria return from exile and take the throne. But things went horribly awry. Probably because Aethelred rather liked being king and wasn't going to step down like his dad did. And so we're told that Osred was betrayed and killed by King Æthelred. <coughs> Not content with stopping there, he also captured the conspirators, including Eilderman Eardwulf, and ordered them killed. But somehow, probably through Northumbrian politics, Eilderman Eardwulf seems to have survived. But whatever the case, King Æthelred was still on the throne. That's pretty good news for him and Charlemagne, but terrible news for Offa. Not to mention Alcuin, who might've liked to have been back in Francia, but he was stuck in Mercia trying to broker a peace. Now, you might wonder why Charlemagne wanted to broker peace with Offa. I mean, he could have just continued to isolate him or even maybe try and force an overthrow. Well, there's a wrinkle in continental politics. Iconoclasm was growing on the continent and Charlemagne wasn't a fan. Creating religious artwork had become quite common in the West. In fact, Christian images even appeared on coins. However, the prevalence of Christian iconography wasn't universally accepted, and some wanted to put a stop to it. In particular, Byzantium had become quite hostile to the use of religious images, going so far as to having a government-led movement to end their use. And that, in a nutshell, is what iconoclasm is. We still see it today, For example, when ISIS and the Taliban destroy priceless artifacts from other religions, or even from their own religions, that is, by definition, iconoclasm. And Charlemagne wanted to prevent it spread west. So some scholars suspect that he was trying to gain as much support as he could for the upcoming Council of Frankfurt in 794. Which could explain why he had Alcuin and Mercia for literally years working on brokering a peace despite the fact that he obviously had his knickers in a twist. But while Charlemagne was powerful, don't forget that Offa was smart, ruthless, and in control of a vast swath of Britain. He was quite active during the trade embargo, and it's thought that during that period, he was shoring up his connections with the church, and he founded St. Albans. The Abbey was well placed on the road from Mercia to London, and it probably would have gained a great deal of attention which is why some scholars argue that he was working to promote a cult rivaling saint augustine's cult you know saint augustine of canterbury apparently Offa's feud with canterbury knew no bounds even augustine who has long been dead was getting hit with some of the splash damage Though, to be clear, that is only a theory, and for the first 200 years, St. Albans has largely an obscure history, so it is hard to say how much attention the abbey truly gained and say with certainty why it was built. But it does look like it was built by Offa at around this point. And it wasn't just religious matters that Offa was tending to. Now, Osred of Northumbria was probably Offa's best chance to alleviate the Northumbrian Frankish threat on his northern border. But it didn't work out, and Osred was dead. So we're told that on that same year, 792, Offa put his own plans into motion. Since King Æthelred wasn't going anywhere, he would have to neutralize the threat another way. Marriage. Offa's daughter, Eilflaid, would marry King Æthelred of Northumbria. The dynastic link would hopefully strengthen the relationship between them and ensure peace. Though frankly, given how chaotic Northumbria was, who could say how long that would reasonably last? And as a side note, this might have been Offa's only involvement in Northumbrian politics. That place was just too damn messy to really get involved. And then, on the 12th of August, 792, King Offa finally got some good news. Archbishop Jambert was dead and buried at St. Augustine's Abbey. I know that sounds rough, but let's face it, those two men really hated each other, and this was probably the glimmer of hope that Offa was waiting for. And he didn't waste any time in pressing his advantage over Kent and appointing a successor. Aethelherd, the abbot of Louth and Lindsay, was appointed. A Mercian now held the see of Canterbury. Sure, Offa might have problems with Francia, but he had the English channel between him and Charlemagne. And back at home, things with Canterbury were calming down. On his western border, he had his formidable dyke. To the north, his son-in-law ruled over Northumbria, and to the south, his other son-in-law ruled over Wessex. Charlemagne might command incredible power on the continent, but Offa wasn't on the continent. And in Britain, Offa was king. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And as you know, we're on virtually every kind of social media out there, and you can find links to all of them at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right, thanks for listening. All right, it's time for another pub quiz. Let's see what you've learned. Question one. Mercia held grand councils that settled matters on both secular and theological matters. What were those councils called? Question 2. How did King Aethelbald die? Question 3. King Aethelbald probably left a large number of illegitimate heirs to the throne thanks to his nun habit. What three things did King Offa do to deal with the threat that they posed to his son's inheritance? Question 4. The eighth century was a period of immense growth and change in Britain. Populations were being relocated, the relationship between the nobility was changing, and communities began to specialize. These changes were the result of the Anglo-Saxons focusing more upon what? Question five. The Mercian views regarding women set them apart from the other Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. How was this reflected in their approach to rule? And there are two points available on this one. Question 6. What is a pallium? Question 7. True or false? Queen Chinnithrith of Mercia had her own coins, and they were the most numerous of European coins featuring a female ruler for that era. Question 8. True or false? Jay never became the Archbishop of Canterbury. Question 9. True or false again? While Offa's Dyke is impressive, it wasn't as long as Hadrian's Wall. Question 10. When somebody, probably Jayenbert, wrote to the Pope with a bunch of accusations, what accusation was made and who did it implicate? Alright, let's see how you did. Question 1. Mercia held grand councils that settled matters on both secular and theological matters. What were those councils called? They were the councils of Closho. Question 2. How did King Æthelbald die? He was killed by his own bodyguard. Question 3. King Æthelbald probably left a large number of illegitimate heirs to the throne thanks to his nun habit what three things did King Offa do to deal with the threat that they posed to his son's inheritance? One, he killed as many of them as he could. Two, he got the church to make a new rule stating that only children of a legitimate marriage could inherit. And three, he had his son consecrated. Question four. The eighth century was a period of immense growth and change in Britain. Populations were being relocated, the relationship between the nobility was changing, and communities began to specialize. These changes were the result of the Anglo-Saxons focusing more upon what? They were focusing more upon trade. Question five. The Mercian views regarding women set them apart from the other Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. How was this reflected in their approach to rule? And there are two points available on this one. One. Women were able to wield power as queens and be active rulers. And two, a king's eligibility to rule came not just from his lineage, but also from who he was married to. Question six, what is a pallium? A pallium was a broad strip of cloth that marked investiture. So basically, it was a magic scarf that said, this guy is the archbishop. Question seven, True or false. Queen Chinithrith of Mercia had her own coins, and they were the most numerous of European coins featuring a female ruler for that era. True. Question 8. True or false. J. Embert never became the Archbishop of Canterbury. False. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury. That was what made him such a problem. Question 9. True or false again. While Offa's Dyke is impressive, it wasn't as long as Hadrian's Wall. False. Even the most conservative of estimates place it at the same length as Hadrian's Wall, with most scholars saying it was 50% longer. Question 10: When somebody, probably Jambert, wrote to the Pope with a bunch of accusations, what accusation was made, and who did it implicate? The accusation was that there was a conspiracy to overthrow the Pope, and it was squarely pointed at Charlemagne and Offa. Okay, I hope you did well, and I'll see you on the next pub quiz.